This is Montgomery Talks, our regular podcast on local issues. And today I have with me Bishop Layla Ortiz. She was elected bishop of the Metro D.C. Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. That was only just a few weeks ago. She covers the Metro D.C. Synod. A synod is kind of like a geographical area. And in this case, Metro D.C. includes Montgomery County, Prince George's County, D.C., and a chunk of Northern Virginia. That's right. And even more important, I think, to Montgomery Talks, Bishop Ortiz is an only resident, at least for the next few weeks. And so, welcome, Bishop Ortiz. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And you have other connections to the area. You were at Good Shepherd Lutheran in Gaithersburg? I was. I was. I was there for a little less than two years. Yes. Yeah, I was serving there as the associate pastor. Mm -hmm. You were elected on June 15th. You took the reins on September 2nd. Well, September 1st, but yes. Okay, September Uh 1st. Okay, so the day before Labor Day. Yes. Wow. Okay. You have your formal installation on October 12th. I do. At the National Presbyterian Church in D.C.? Actually, no. We we changed the location. We are now going to be at the Memorial Chapel of the University of Maryland. Oh. Yeah, we're excited about that. I've actually been to a couple of weddings there. That's interesting. Okay. And you will serve six years on this term. I will. Your synod has 35,000 members in about 80 churches, I understand. Yes. Yes. Sometimes we, we go between 75 and 80 congregations, depending on um, congregations that are new and congregations that close. Okay. Before we get into this, um, I have two, a couple of disclosures. One is I'm a very imperfect Lutheran. um, (laughs) And two, my daughter and her husband are three quarters of the way in their training to become Lutheran pastors. Yes, yes. So just want to make sure everybody knows that. Um, A second ago, I defined what a synod was, but what exactly does it mean to be a bishop in the Lutheran church? To be a bishop in the Lutheran church means that I will serve as pastor to the synod. And within that, that means that I pastor the the pastors, but uh, my primary concern is to make sure that the congregations are living into their mission and however I can help with that, I do. And so what our offices do is help congregations meet the pastor that will lead them, help them through transitions, help them through whatever situations they may have. And I walk alongside them during those seasons. Okay. And who actually elected you? The assembly. So every congregation, at this point we had 75 congregations, um, every congregation brought uh, representation from their congregations along with their pastors. And so we had approximately 400, 500 people that were at the assembly, and this was the assembly that elected me. Okay. From the outside, a bishop election seems unusual in that you don't really campaign for the position. No, not at all. You, no. So you, you have to actually not want the job to get the job. <laughs> yeah. Actually, if they, they tell us, which is actually true, if you want the job, then maybe you should find out exactly what the job is. Um, most people run away from it. Actually, the people that were there after the election have received both congratulations and condolences. <laughs> so so it is it is a an interesting position. There's a lot of heavy, difficult work and a lot of a lot of things that remain confidential and have to be legal and difficult and oftentimes even painful. Mm-hmm. And so yes, the process is very, very interesting and yes, there's no campaigning whatsoever. We arrive and the assembly in the, the first ballot, uh, it's an ecclesiastical ballot, so the assembly decides which candidates should be up for election. And in that first ballot, every person that is there writes down the name of a person they consider that could be the next bishop. 
And from there, the election continues and the select few that are at the top seven get to speak to the assembly for four minutes <laughs> and kind of get a sen- give the assembly a sense of who they are and why they might be the right candidate for the position. And then from that seven, we go into a, a Q&A. And that Q&A, we have no idea what those questions will be. We'll have to answer them as faithfully as we can. And then after that Q&A, the three candidates go down to two candidates. And again, those two candidates um, speak to the assembly for seven minutes. And from that point, then the candidate is elected. So uh, your election came, I guess, during election season or something. Um, Synods across the country were electing bishops. So the ELCA has 13 new bishops. Yes. Eight of them are women. Yes. And is it two or three are people of color? Two of us. Two of you. Mm-hmm. Lutherans aren't a terribly diverse bunch. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, it's a, you know, for a, well, I mean, the, the church started in Northern Europe, so you can imagine that it's, it's, it's pretty white. Yeah. But um, is this a sign of progress or what? I think this is a sign of somewhat of an awakening and a a new awareness of the world and the context that we're living in, a desire to be relevant and connected to our times. I think one of the the verses that keep coming up for all of us, all, all 13 of us, is that we have been called for such a time as this, and so which comes from the book of Esther, meaning that we understand that these times demand a lot more diversity and a lot a lot different voices than the ones that have been predominant you know predominant in the past and it's been an interesting season and many difficult conversations have already arisen but it's been also what I have said, I think, is true about what it means to be church at this point in our time. It's probably the most difficult time to be church and the absolute best time to be church. And so I'm, I'm, I'm honored to have been called into this position and very well aware of the weight of this call, considering that I am a person of color in a predominantly white denomination. So I just want to back up. You think this is the best time and the worst time? Charles Dickens was in the record. <laughs> so why is it the worst time? I think that there has been an understanding of what it means to be Christian in this nation that we don't necessarily connect with. Um, the, the, The understanding of being Christian, the loudest voices have been exclusive. The loudest voices have determined who's in and who's out, who's welcome and who's not. And we are a denomination that is very much committed to the welcome and love of all people. And so the problem is that we are not the loudest voice. And so that's part of the work. Part of the work is for us to be braver and more transparent and more willing to say, actually, the Jesus we serve is always the Jesus, is the Jesus that calls us to the margins and calls us to the other side and is welcoming of all people and loving of all people, whether we understand the lifestyle, whether we understand the background, the context, the culture, regardless of who we are, precisely because of who we are, we're called to love and to welcome. And so I think that one of the challenges and the most difficult time for us to be church is that we are battling and struggling and, and, and coming face to face with an understanding of being Christian that isn't necessarily what we as Lutherans understand to be Christian. And so being more vocal and being, being braver around those topics makes it difficult for us. But at the same time, there have been voices, yeah. not necessarily, well, maybe within the church, but definitely outside the church, 
who have said the ELCA is, is probably one of the most liberal churches out there, which um, maybe that's not t- entirely fair, but, but they have knocked the church for being a fairly liberal church. And at the same time, the numbers of Lutherans are starting to slip or have slipped. Yeah. The church was founded in 1988 with something like 4.2 yeah, million yeah. members. There's 3.5 million now. Yes. Are those numbers slipping away for a God to say, maybe you should change your direction? Mm. Or what does it say? I don't think there's a there's just one answer to that. I think there are many factors that contribute to this particular reality for our church. I think that more and more, especially the demographics and the the, the times are requesting, demanding, insisting that the church be even more progressive, more vocal, but also more diverse in how we worship. And so we're finding that millennials or younger folk are just not interested in being in a particular space on Sunday that is particularly traditional, but they're happy to gather at brunch, right, and have conversations around faith, right? And so some of our congregations insist that we should keep doing and living and being church the way we've always been while the times are demanding us to shift. There are other denominations that are willing to make those shifts because their goal is to win souls for Christ, right? Our goal is not to win souls, but to to make disciples. We have been saved by Christ and by God's grace. And so how do we live into the world, live in the world in ways that are transformative and revolutionary? I think we're, we're not necessarily transitioning with the times as quickly as the times are pressing us. So I think that's one factor. The other thing is that there's an understanding, yes, that we may be probably one of the more liberal denominations, but that doesn't necessarily translate in the way that we worship. And so to to be liberal for most people is to be progressive and to be more diverse and to be more inclusive. And if you walk into most of our congregations, they're not as diverse. It's traditional worship. And so people may be interested in faith, but they're not necessarily interested in the faith that we are providing or in the faith structures that we are providing. I think another thing is that there is this true desire for wholeness, a, 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 a faith and a tradition that feeds all of who we are, not just our mind and our intellect, but also our heart and our being. And we tend to be a denomination that is very intellectual, which is a beautiful thing. I, I love intellect. But people are looking for spaces and places where they can marry their head with their heart. And so that's part of what we're being called into. And that's part of what other denominations are doing really, really well. They're catering to the heart and the feeling and the desire and, and this sense of community and wanting of, of transformation and revolution in their lives. And I don't know that we, we've gotten to the place of feeling, feeling comfortable to address those particular desires from our context. You have your own podcast mm-hmm. where you talk about you talk you talk about your own faith journey. You bring in guests to talk about their faith journey. In the uh, introduction, and in, uh, when you leave the when you exit the podcast, you mentioned that there are people who think the church is BS. Yeah. What are you going to do as bishop to? I mean, now that you've laid down that marker, how are you going to start to eliminate some of that BS in yeah. the church? <laughs> I knew at some point that would come back to haunt me. Um, <laughs> I think when I when I say that some people believe that the church is BS, they're critiquing the institution. How am I going to address that as as bishop? I think I think part of the call is to have very very difficult and honest conversations conversations as graciously as possible. 
We are living in a time that demands and requires us to be true disciples. And just yesterday, we were addressing a text in Luke chapter 14, which was a very hard and difficult text from Jesus talking to the crowds and saying, you know, if you don't hate your father and mother, your sons and daughters and your children, you cannot be my disciple. He says again, right after that, if you don't take up the cross, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't give all of your possessions, you cannot be my disciples. Oh, my goodness. Such a tough, difficult text. And I was convicted by the text. And I realized on so many occasions, we want to speak of the Jesus that heals and restores and is good and welcoming. And we rarely want to take Jesus seriously when Jesus is saying, actually, to be my disciple comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. We're going to be countercultural. We're going to be challenged at every turn. Every time you talk about love, there are some particular kinds of love that people think is absolutely political (laughs) Um, instead of the love of Christ that welcomes all people. So how how do we debate this? So how am I going to engage this? I think that's part of my discernment and that's part of the process and my thinking of how am I going to approach this particular demographic of people who are just unwilling to engage the institution while also realizing that Jesus is asking us to take him seriously and be disciples. Um, I don't know that I know the, the full answer to that question. I think that that's going to be part of my journey, but I am very passionate about taking Jesus seriously and also taking the people seriously. What is it that they want? What is it that they need? What is it that they're craving in their spirituality, in their wholeness, in their heart, and in their mind? And how do we engage that as faithfully as possible? Going back to what you had said about how society is changing the church and the church is whatnot, I think you personally represent an interesting development of one of the trends of at least this part of the 21st century in that at least some people of color are moving into positions of power. And I'm sure there are a great many populations who say we haven't come far enough but you're the first, certainly the first Latina bishop for this area, or maybe even the first in the whole of ELCA or? Well, there have been two um, Latina bishops in the Caribbean Synod, in Puerto Rico in particular, um, but I would be the first here in the domestic United States. So uh, what's your take on that? <laughs> uh, shock, awe. Actually, if I can be so blunt, I think that I was elected by this particular assembly in Washington, D.C., because I come from a different denomination. I was raised Pentecostal, which is very much heart space, right? Pentecostal, a lot more conservative, a lot more exclusive. I grew up being very comfortable deciding for others who was in and who was out. I was very comfortable um, to say, oh, you live this way? Oh, you're going to hell. That was my comfort zone. And then by the grace of God, I was introduced to the Lutheran Church by circumstance. I was moving from Puerto Rico to New York because of a, a family difficulty. My mother was ill. And when I moved to New York, I was introduced to the Lutheran denomination and later introduced to Lutheran theology. And the more I heard this word of grace, the more my spirit knew it was absolutely true. I couldn't debate it. It it was something that was just piercing to me and transformational. And so what ended up happening for me was that I learned to recognize God's true, true love and welcome of, of all people and God's desire for us to have a devotion that was holistic, not just the heart, but also the intellect, have the argument, have the conversation, be able to articulate your faith. 
And so when I came before the assembly and I shared of how there were people who in the pew were experiencing a desire to be awakened, a desire for their spirits to kind of come alive again, and that we were called by the Holy Spirit to to live in this life abundant, I think that that's what resonated with this particular assembly. I'm able to have the conversations, but I'm also eager to see us learn Christ, love Christ, and be present in ways that aren't necessarily customary for our denomination. And so what it means for me to have been called into this church in this particular way is that the Spirit is up to something. And of course, I'm still processing what is the Spirit up to, (laughs) because it doesn't really make much sense. Right. This is Metro D.C. There's an understanding expectation of what leadership in this particular context looks like. And they've just called a Latina from the Bronx to be to be their bishop. So the spirit is definitely up to something. And I'm eager for us to discover what that is. And for me now, not just for D.C., but now to be a part of a conference of bishops, majority white leaders, majority white men in particular, walk into those spaces and to dare and show up. I think that's For me, that's my call. If I've been called, I need to show up in the fullness of who I am and not check any of who I am at the door because by God's grace and because the spirit is the spirit, it's me who's been called, right? And so while I'm still discovering what this means and I'm still trying to figure this out, for right now, I think the spirit is just asking me and and my colleagues to, to show up in our fullness and then let the spirit be who the spirit is and we'll see what happens. Do you feel that you bear a special burden for um, young Latina girls, Latina boys, young people, and how they see their place in the world? Yeah. Or are you still trying? To, are you so busy trying to figure out what the Holy Spirit's up to <laughs> that um, you need to worry about that first? And and the role model aspect of your of your existence is going to be just bookmarked for a little while. Yeah, my goodness, this is even the first time. Even the, the, the idea of a role model, that hasn't even come across my mind, to be honest. That's the first question I've received in that way. I guess I've had more the question, the more the gender question, more than the cultural question. More people have been excited that a woman mm-hmm. has become bishop of the state and, and not necessarily mentioned my culture. But I've always carried the weight of being Latina in this country um, and in this church. I've always been well aware of how I'm being perceived, um, how people like me are perceived. And so I'm always, in many ways, self-conscious that I, I carry a particular weight that maybe my colleagues do not. And so whether I do become a role model for a formal role model to young uh, Latinas and Latinos, I pray that that I represent well in ways that kind of help all of us, not just my, my Latinx, I say Latinx because it's not for gender purposes, it could be anything, for anyone to say, you know, there are stories, all of us carry particular stories and arrive at particular outcomes that none of us could have imagined, right? I'm someone who failed out of college, and went back to college and am an ABD now, all but dissertation now. I would never believe that when I was 12 years old in the Bronx. I'm someone who really struggled to care for her family because my mother was very ill and I'm an only child and I had no idea how I was going to get out of that particular situation and be part of that journey and succeed. And yet my mom is doing well and um, we're okay and we're 
I'm the bishop of Metro DC. Like, I mean, there are so many ways that we can be present and go back, play rewind on our narratives and, and help, help our younger folk realize that what they're living today will not be the end all be all. God happens in ways that surprise us every single day. And so if I am a role model, I hope that I'm always as transparent as I can to say God calls and we respond regardless of our story, regardless, and not only regardless, but because of our stories, God calls us into particular spaces. Yeah, you're making me think that just hadn't been part of my um, thought process. But I guess, of course, this definitely matters to me. I think many people that look like me and come from backgrounds like my own, we claim a particular narrative that keeps us in places that aren't necessarily life-giving or life-abundant. And I hope that I can give testimony to how, no matter the story, God happens. Okay, I'd like to change subjects just a little bit. You were at the big Lutheran conference in Chicago yes. a couple of weeks ago, and um, the church declared itself a sanctuary denomination, Yeah, um, which made a an easy headline, but I'm not so sure it got a whole lot of explanation in the news reports I saw. So what exactly do, does it mean for the Lutheran Church to be a sanctuary denomination? To be quite honest, I think all of us and the Conference of Bishops are still trying to figure out exactly what this means. We were all there and we all read the document um, and the memorial that was presented. And that memorial doesn't necessarily speak to uh, making sure that all of our churches have showers, uh, you know, making sure that we will welcome anyone. And it doesn't speak to us breaking any laws. I think what was has been most provocative is the title of the memorial for us to be a sanctuary synod. I think we could have easily used the word hospitality, a hospitable synod, and it would have translated the same. What it means for us is that we will continue to do what we've always done. We have Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services. We have Lutheran Social Services. We are always, always on the side of those who are in most need. As an institution, as a church, we've always been that. This memorial gives our church permission to be bolder in our hospitality and in our welcome of all people. What it doesn't do is obligate any congregation to do anything. It's a declaration of who we are as a church, but it doesn't necessarily obligate anyone or any congregation to make any particular moves that they are not ready to make. We in particular received, because we are in this particular synod, Metro DC, we received three particular calls, two calls from our church, from our synod, um, were to say um, how grateful they were that our church made this declaration. One call came in to say how disappointed they were that the declaration wasn't stronger. <laughs> so we are in a particular kind of setting that wants us to be as bold and as welcoming as possible. That's not the same for the rest of the church. Most of our church is really struggling with this conversation. And I would dare say that many, many of the people who are struggling with this conversation haven't read the document. And so that's part of the call, part of the responsibility um, and accountability for all of us to read the document and realize that we've already been doing a particular work intentionally. And now the church is giving our congregations permission to be bolder in their faith and bolder in how they welcome the neighbor. Okay. Um, you may well know that, that we have a Unitarian church here in Bethesda that is providing sanctuary to oh, a woman from El Salvador. Mm -hmm. They have lovely grounds. She doesn't have to leave, but they have seven acres. 
but I'm sure lots of churches, lots of Lutheran churches, certainly don't have, like you said, a shower. Yeah. Um, let alone, you know, the ability to bring somebody in. Mm-hmm. So you have a bold church. Yeah. But they don't have the facilities. What what, what do they do? They can make sure that the family or person in need has the legal representation that they would need to navigate the situation. They can host a family or a person and have different programs set up for them. There are congregations in our Senate in D.C. proper who make sure that immigrants have a place to live in conjunction um, with the work of the Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services. They can offer trainings for neighbors in the neighborhood who are struggling with immigration issues. Plenty of trainings are happening across our Senate. Plenty of trainings are available to our pastors and lay leaders of the congregation on how to be a good neighbor. We can, both congregations can be part of the Amparo program, which is part of the ELCA. Amparo is for, um, to walk with children who are immigrants who will go into the legal process and don't have representation. There are guardian angels, they call guardian angels, who go into court with them and make sure that the lawyers and judge are following the process accordingly for these children, um, who are alone in the process. There are many, many opportunities and possibilities for our congregations to be bolder in their welcome, even if they don't have a shower and even if they don't, they can't necessarily be a sanctuary space for a particular family. So what we've, what we're creating is a network of information that all of our congregations will have access to so that when and if they receive a family or, or a family comes to them, they know where to point them to. Yeah. yeah. Now you say you've gotten three communications from churches who all either supported or wanted more. Yeah. No communication from any church who said you went too far. Nope. Not direct to us. Not to us at all. Not that I've re- not that I've heard. Right. Yeah. Right. The communications that came in actually came in right after the assembly. So it, they were still under Bishop Richard Graham, who's right. the retired bishop of our Senate, and he communicated those calls to me. Since he's been retired, as in a week, (laughs) um, I have not received any communications from anyone who has been upset by this particular declaration. Which seems a little bit unusual, especially for what we're going through here in Montgomery County with the multiple incidents of illegal immigrants committing sex crimes, which Mm -hmm. just seems... Um, and, And the ability for some people to conflate helping an immigrant with... Yeah. Helping a criminal. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Honestly, I, I guess it could be surprising, but we're in a very interesting and unique uh, synod. I think even churchwide, which is where the presiding bishop resides, um, even they consider our synod to be an anomaly within the church. We're a very different kind of synod. And so our context is, as you would suspect, either liberal or progressive, understanding, well-informed. And so it's very rare that we get a call that says that tells us, oh, someone is being too political. <laughs> That's not a very common notification that we receive. On the contrary, there are there are congregations and congregation members who say when something happens politically, we want to hear from the pulpit. We want to hear from the pastor how this is relevant and contextual. How do we go out back out into the world and be as faithful as possible, um, given the, the context and our place and time? It is true that many of our churches are what we call purple. So you have you may have liberals and conservatives in the same sanctuary, but I think they're all in expectation that we will speak to the times. 
because that is the gospel. The gospel presses us to speak to where we are. And so to be quite honest, we haven't received any calls or anything that has said you're going too far. Okay. Yeah. So uh, by way of wrapping up, I want to point out, um, I mentioned before that you have a podcast. I do. Uh, Where can people find it? It's on iTunes and Spotify. It's called The Luther Costal. The Luther Costal Podcast, meaning Lutheran and Pentecostal, because I have still, I will not divorce myself from my Pentecostal formation and spirituality. Um, I can't. (laughs) They just can't let it go. But I'm very Lutheran when it comes to our theology. So this is the Luther Costal Podcast, and we talk about everything worship, everything culture, some, some more provocative themes, some themes that we're still learning about. And I'm still discerning whether to go to season two So, and what season two will look like. So for right now, season one has 10 episodes and, and the topics vary. Yeah, we'll see what happens oh. if, if season two can happen. Oh, geez. I- <laughs> Don't leave us hanging. There was a cl- I know. Let's see, episode 10 was such a cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much, Bishop. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for the invitation. This has been Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media. Our engineer today was Carolyn Ruskowskis. And join us next time for Montgomery Talks.